And welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. Well, this past Wednesday, you probably noticed an unusual number of hearts out and about. If you stopped by the grocery store, you may have seen overwhelmed floral departments selling heart-shaped balloons. Or men urgently milling around the predominantly pink and red tinted card section. Or moms helping their children pick out valentines to share at school. Maybe you saw heart-shaped boxes of candy, heart-themed advertisements, and all manner of other heart-themed propaganda. So it's fitting that this week's Beatitude, our sixth out of nine, keeps that focus on one's heart. But as we'll see, this Beatitude isn't just concerned with emotions. It's concerned with purity. And this Beatitude doesn't promise us the blessing of warm and fuzzy feelings in the middle of a cold winter. It promises us the blessing of seeing God. In eternity. In this beatitude, Jesus teaches us what is necessary to experience the blessing of dwelling in God's eternal presence. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, your spirit, your word, and your church. Thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. I pray for those among us this morning who are hurting. I pray for those among us who are suffering. I pray for those among us who are wrestling with loss or frustration or disappointment. I pray that you would comfort us. And Lord, I also pray for those of us who are feeling like we've got things all figured out, feeling like we have all the answers, thinking that we've got things under control. Lord, I pray that you would humble us, remind us of our dependence upon you. I pray for all of us as we come to your word. Give us open ears and open hearts and open minds to what you have to say to us. I pray that these words that we've read over the past five or six Sundays that we've probably read times before that even, I pray that they would not lose their power for us. And if they do lose their power for us, that says more about us than it does about your word. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us be attentive to that inspired and authoritative word that you've given to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in this such sufficient manner. We don't know everything about you because we can't know everything about you. You're just too great for us to fully wrap our minds around, but we know so much about you from your word, and we thank you for that. I pray that you'd continue teaching us about yourself in your word today. And thank you for revealing yourself, most of all, in your son Jesus. Thank you that Christ calls us together, Christ brings us together that we can call each other brother and sister because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. We can call ourselves your children because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. So, Lord, thank you for your person, for your work, for your cross, for your empty tomb. And, Lord, thank you that you will come again in power and glory. But be with us now as we worship you, as we read your word. We love you. 
We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what makes this beatitude distinct from all the others we've studied so far? All the ones we just read. Well, out of all of Jesus' statements about what the good life for his disciples ought to look like, this one may be the most attentive to what's going on inside of us. It prioritizes the internal over the external. Of course, the phrase poor in spirit could give this beatitude a run for its money, given its emphasis on the internal. But I propose that verse 8 takes the cake in terms of its focus on our invisible attitudes, affections, or disposition. It emphasizes our state of mind, or better yet, our state of heart above visible actions. Most of the other Beatitudes can pretty easily correlate to some external action. Not just what someone thinks, what someone feels, or what someone intends, but what they practically do, where the rubber meets the road. But this one, maybe more than all the others, stresses not just what you do, but stresses who you are. Now, it is worth mentioning that even if this beatitude is a little bit unique compared to the rest, it still falls in line with other portions of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For example, in Matthew 5:21 through 30, Jesus teaches about the sins of murder and lust. He reminds his disciples that those sins aren't just seen in the external actions of taking a life or committing adultery. They begin with the internal attitudes of anger and lust that lead to those external actions of murder and adultery. And then in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, Jesus says that external good deeds, deeds like giving, praying, and fasting, as wholesome as they look on the outside, can be done wrongly. How? If they're done with a less than pure internal motivation. If they're performed to impress humans more than to glorify God. So in the Beatitudes and throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very concerned with the practical, visible, and tangible ways that his disciples live. 
But Jesus is also very aware of how important the state of one's heart is when we perform those actions. And that is especially clear in today's beatitude. But with all that said, before we move forward, what was Jesus thinking of when he talks about our heart? In the ancient world, a person's heart fulfilled a wide variety of roles. Your heart was the source of your personality, your emotions, your will, your intellect, and even your memory. A person's heart did a lot more than pump blood. As we might put it, it was what made a person tick. But before you laugh at how little those ancient people knew about the human anatomy, it's worth remembering that we think of the heart in lots of the same ways. We associate our hearts with romantic love, with our most passionate pursuits, or even a sense of toughness. The kids got heart. Now, I'm no doctor, but I doubt that any of that stuff shows up on MRIs. I doubt that any of it shows up on CAT scans or in medical textbooks. But we still believe that somehow, some way, our hearts play a role in all of it. When it comes to the human heart, there is more than just something physical happening. Ancient people knew it. We know it, and Jesus affirms it. But the Old Testament affirms this broad function of the human heart as well. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God speaks of the human heart as only evil continually. He associates it with our morality. In the book of Exodus, we see Pharaoh's persistent rebellion against God described as having a hard heart. In the famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6, a passage that was firmly impressed upon every Jew, basically from birth, Israelites were commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Psalm 90 verse 12 associates our hearts with wisdom. And the prophets speak frequently of the human heart. Jeremiah warns that the human heart is deceitful and desperately sick, which means that you may want to think twice before you unquestioningly follow your heart. Clearly, our hearts matter, especially before God. So that raises the question. What kind of state does God want our hearts to be in? Well, I think Jesus already told us in Matthew 5, verse 8. To experience the blessing of seeing God, our hearts must be pure. Turn to Psalm 24, starting in verse 3. King David writes there, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. 
He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Throughout the Old Testament, God is very particular about purity, especially when it comes to being in his presence. Or, as Psalm 24 put it, standing in his holy place. That's why there were so many laws about maintaining one's purity within the community, offering pure sacrifices for sin, and maybe most of all, the purity of the priests who would enter the tabernacle or the temple. But in addition to that stress on ritual or ceremonial purity, God also cares about moral purity. Psalm 24 puts clean hands and a pure heart right next to each other for a reason. That's because external actions and internal purity go hand in hand. Jesus affirms this when he says things like, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or when he says that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. But then there's another angle to purity in Psalm 24. And it's seen in those words about not lifting up your soul to what is false or swearing deceitfully. This is what Joshua was getting at earlier when he talked about the human heart wanting multiple things. The Christian theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said that to be pure in heart is to will one thing, to want one thing. That one thing, of course, being God, because he's the number one thing worth wanting. There's a sense in which a pure heart is one that lacks duplicity, you might say. Along those lines, John Calvin said that the pure in heart, quote, take no delight in cunning, but converse sincerely with others and express nothing by word or look which they do not feel in their heart. Who else had 16th century Protestant reformer on their be true to yourself bingo card? I didn't. But there's a little bit of that in what Calvin is saying. If we want to ascend the hill of the Lord, if we desire to enter God's holy presence, or even see him, in some capacity, to quote Matthew 5, 8, then our hearts must be pure. That concerns both our attitudes and our actions, our words and our deeds, our expressed priorities, the things that we say matter, as well as our true devotions, the things we actually care about. And if we keep in mind the broad concept of the human heart that we mentioned a few moments ago, personality, emotions, intellect, will, memory, all of that stuff. If our hearts encompass all of those things, it really means that there's no part of our lives that this kind of purity does not touch. So the pure in heart are blessed because they will see God. Simple enough, right? 
Well, there is one problem. Left to ourselves, sinful human beings are anything and everything but pure in heart. Our hearts are subject to, complicit in, and guilty of all kinds of things that leave us unworthy of ascending the hill of the Lord. We have hands that have committed numerous acts of rebellion. We have minds that have entertained all kinds of idols. None of us can say with any confidence that we are unstained. So how can our hearts be purified? How can our hands be washed? How can our minds be cleansed? How can our souls be made true? By faith in the man who was worthy in and of himself to ascend the hill of the Lord, yet chose to ascend the cross. By faith in God's son who already dwelled in God's holy presence, but voluntarily descended into our fallen world to save us. By faith in the man whose heart is beautifully, graciously, and thankfully so little like ours. In the best possible way. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to a day when God's people would finally be pure in heart. And as a result, be pure in the rest of their lives as well. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about this, especially in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. Ezekiel longed for the day when Israel's hearts would be cleansed, softened, and inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And according to the author of Hebrews, that day arrives with Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, the author tells us that the old sacrifices of animals, as fitting as they were at the time, could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They were ultimately inadequate. But then he says in Hebrews 9, verse 14, that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies our conscience, the inside stuff that we've been talking about all morning, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's sacrifice offered a kind of purity that no sacrifice before it ever could. So the ultimate solution to the problem of impure human hearts 
unworthy of entering the Lord's presence is Jesus. It's by his justifying blood that his disciples are declared pure. And it's by the sanctifying work of his spirit that we learn to actually live like it. But what about that second part of the beatitude? What does it mean to see God? Now, you may not think all that much about that phrase, but it's quite theologically significant. Those words have led to endless debate among Christians for centuries. Now, why do you think that is? It's because the Bible seems to affirm two things at once. First, there are passages which seem to indicate that humans can experience a vision of God. This is sometimes called the beatific vision. Same word that we're talking about the past few weeks, beatitude, blessed, the blessed vision. So, for example, in Genesis 32, Jacob claims to have seen God face to face and lived. There is a sense in which Moses appears to see God in Exodus 24 and 34. The prophet Isaiah says that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And 1 John 3, 2 says that Christians will one day see God as he is. Pretty straightforward, right? But then there are other passages. And these clearly teach that God is invisible. The Apostle Paul calls him the invisible God in Colossians 1. Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light and says that no one has ever seen or can see God in 1 Timothy 6. And the Apostle John seems to say the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Both sides have their scriptural support. And both sides have good arguments about why the other side is wrong. On top of that, both sides have strengths and weaknesses. The strength of the first side, the beatific vision side, is that it reminds us that God himself is our ultimate reward. That as great as heaven is now, and as great as the new creation will one day be in the future, God himself is what makes them so great. Heaven is not great because you get to eat your favorite food every day for the rest of eternity. Or because you get to go fishing every day for the rest of eternity, if that's your jam. What makes heaven great is that God is there. And those people seem to understand that. And that's good. That's helpful. But the strength of the other side, the invisible God side, is maintaining God's transcendence. Their insistence that God cannot be seen affirms God's greatness, his glory, his majesty, so much that human eyes like ours can never even begin to fully grasp or comprehend him. But what's the solution to this apparent theological contradiction? Well, maybe the answer comes in the second half of John 1, verse 18. We mentioned the first half a moment ago, 
No one has ever seen God. But the second half tells us that Christians see God in the person and work of Jesus. So will Christians see God in some grander sense or not in eternity? My answer is a firm, I don't know. There's a place for some theological mystery here. But what I will say with complete confidence is that Christians will one day dwell in God's presence. Maybe an analogy would be helpful as we try to sort this out. When we say that we're excited to go see our family or our friends, we're not stressing the act of physically looking at them. We're not anticipating the chance to just sit there and awkwardly stare at them. That's not what we're talking about. We're stressing the joy of being with them. We're stressing our desire to just be in their presence. Likewise, disciples of Jesus look forward to being with God, whether we see him or not. But I think we will see our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And that will be more than enough for us. Revelation 22 verses 3 and 4 seem to say as much. And in John 14 verses 8 and 9, Jesus says that in a way, when we see him, we see the Father. So do you want to see God? If the answer is yes, then you must be pure in heart. Now, how can you be pure in heart? Repent of your sin. Believe in the gospel. Be sanctified, washed, cleansed, and purified by the power of the Spirit. But remember... Like we noticed in Psalm 24, our heart and our hands go together. We've talked all morning about our hearts, our attitudes, the internal, the unseen, and that's all incredibly important. And this beatitude really drives that point home, and rightfully so. But remember that following Jesus is not just an internal change of affection, belief, or loyalty. As important as those things are, following Jesus leads to an external transformation of life. Those Old Testament prophets looked forward to the Israelites' hearts being changed by God, not just so that they would be saved or forgiven, not just so they would no longer have to worry about hell, not just so they could sit back and wait for heaven, and not really do a whole lot. Their hearts would be changed by God so that they could begin to live the lives God called them to live. Lives of worship, obedience, and holiness as his people. So this beatitude does not get us off the hook when it comes to our actions. We can't be content to just say, well, our hearts were in the right place. Jesus stresses both. 
may we also live the lives that God calls us to live. Lives of worship, obedience, and holiness as his people. May the words of our mouths and the work of our hands match the state of our hearts. Now that our hearts have been purified by Christ's blood, may the rest of our lives follow suit by the power of the Spirit. As we close, look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. We mentioned Hebrews 9 a couple of times earlier, those chapters that stress the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice over and above every other sacrifice. And when we get to Hebrews 10, we start to see some of the implications of who Christ is and what Christ has done. The author says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is telling us that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can ascend at the hill of the Lord. And someday, in a way that we don't fully understand yet, we will see God. How do we approach him? With confidence and assurance. Why do we have that confidence? Because of the blood of Jesus, our great priest. And when can we approach God? Well, in a very real sense, both now and in the future. Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Our bodies have been washed. Our sins have been forgiven. So hold fast your good confession. Be stirred up yourself and stir up each other to good works with our hands on the outside, produced by pure hearts on the inside. May we live good and blessed lives now, worthy of the glory that we will see and experience in God's holy presence in eternity. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that our hearts have been, can be made pure by your body and your blood, Lord Jesus. I think all of us deep down know that our hearts are less than pure in and of themselves. It's easy and it's tempting to play the comparison game and compare our hearts or compare our lives to other people's and argue that we're not as bad as that person over there and we're more worthy than that person on the other side too. But Lord, remind us, as hard as it is, that our hearts are not pure left to ourselves. 
That's bad news, but it's bad news that we need to hear for our ultimate good. Because it drives us, it draws us to you as the one who can purify our hearts. So Lord, cleanse us, wash us, that we might ascend your hill. Remind us that we have been cleansed, we have been purified by faith in Christ. Even when we fall short, even when we miss the mark, even when old sins and old remnants of sin raise their ugly heads back up, remind us that we have been purified, that we have been cleansed, that we have been washed by Christ's blood, and nothing changes that. And Lord, I also pray that you would help us persevere and press on until we enter your presence. Whatever we'll see, whatever we won't see, Lord, we simply look forward to being in your midst. So, Lord, I pray that as we go out in this world and see all kinds of things that we don't want to see, all kinds of things that we shouldn't see, as sometimes we put things before our own eyes that are not worth looking at, Lord, help us look forward to seeing you, being in your presence, beholding your glory in whatever capacity you graciously allow us to do that. Lord, help us press on until that day comes. By faith in Christ, by the power of your spirit who lives within us. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Service for the morning. Just a couple of closing thoughts. Uh, Within the church, we often see these two dominant extreme attitudes. Uh, One says that, well, as long as somebody's heart is in the right place, as long as they mean well, it doesn't really matter what they do on the outside. That's not healthy. But then there's the other extreme, too, which is something like legalism, which is as long as I jump through the hoops and do the right things and perform the right actions, it doesn't really matter all that much where my heart is or what my intentions are. And that's not helpful either. Now, I do think as we look at ourselves, human beings can be pretty good at behavior modification. We can be pretty good at changing our actions. We can lose a lot of weight by changing our eating habits or exercise habits. We can save a lot of money. There's a lot that we can accomplish in terms of our actions just by our own blood, sweat, tears, and wills. But changing our hearts, that is a little more tricky. And that's where God comes in, especially if we want our hearts to be in a place of purity, a place that leaves us able to ascend the hill of the Lord, to come into God's presence. We need Christ for that. So if you have any questions about what that means, by all means, talk to me, talk to Zach, talk to an elder, or just talk to a fellow believer. We'd love to have those conversations with you about what it means to follow Christ. And if you have anything that we can pray about, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to get to know you. If you're new, stick around, have some coffee, hang out for a few minutes. And again, be aware of the things happening after church. Youth group is coming. Women's study is coming as well. So be cognizant of those. And of course, we hope to see you back here next week. And with that, I will close our service in prayer. Father, again, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that... You are more than capable of purifying our hearts. Our sin is great, but your grace is greater. So, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can be 
forgiven. We can be restored. We can be reconciled to you. So much so that we can look forward with confidence and assurance to ascending your hill and living in your holy presence, even as we are so much less than holy in and of ourselves. Thank you that we have that great promise, that great reward awaiting us. Lord, as we live in this world where that reward sometimes seems far off and distant, I pray that you'd give us endurance, give us perseverance, give us faith, courage, persistence, all those things that we need to press on to our reward. And Lord, I pray that, again, as we see so many things that are not worth looking at, remind us of the glory that we will one day experience and help us live in the light of that glory right now. Not just content to have pure hearts, but by your spirit, seeing those pure hearts produce good works for your glory and for our good. Again, be with us in the week ahead. Help us glorify you with whatever it is that we might face. And I pray you'd bring us back here safely next week. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.